0: You guys hear me okay? Amazing. Gosh, it's so dark, I can't see you guys. I can't get a response. So my family's here with me, um, which I can't see, but I'm trusting that you're right out there somewhere. So (laughs) uh, there's Noah and Caleb and Jonah, and one of my kids is away, Micah, playing soccer, my wife, Farah, my parents, my sister and sister-in-law. And so if you see kids at this church that aren't under four, um, there's a good chance they belong to me right now. I I love this church um, partially because of your story. You guys have an amazing story, just how you sort of came into an existence, but started with a bunch of young people who are now young families, and so it's so fun to see, like, two-year-olds running all over the place in this church. Mm. So, like Brad said, I don't know about business leader, but definitely a business guy, tech entrepreneur here in town, and I have a couple of companies. I think I'm pointing the right way. Down the street here at First in Washington, actually, two guys that I work with, Nathan and Graham, are sitting here. And so, uh, you can ask them uh, after church today if the things I'm saying are actually true, and they're actually making their way out in in my work. Um, I'm going to start by talking about why work matters. And so, if you want to, yeah, that's perfect. Um, So this wraps up you guys' series, uh, your work series, and. Um, you can see this picture here. This is actually the neighborhood I live in. I live out in Gilbert, a neighborhood called Agritopia. We'll get back to this in a little bit because I want to use it as an illustration. But to really talk about why work matters, we're going to have to take a little bit of a running start at the theology of work. So to do that, we're going to um, you can jump to the next one there. We're going to use this. This is the gospel story. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration. How many of you guys have seen something like this before to tell the story of the gospel? Yes, that's great. It's really good. We're going to use this and talk about it a little bit, and then we're going to jump into God's word and see what God's word has to say. If you have a Bible with you, uh, you can use it, but I'll have the verses here on screen too. So this, the story of God, creation first. God created everything. The verses that we just read and, and said that it was good, right? So he, um, and you can actually flip back to the one before. We'll stay on that one for a while. Sorry, I don't have a clicker, so it's hard to jump around. Um, God created everything and said that it was good. He created a man and woman and said that they were very good, and man had shalom in the garden. He had peace with God. He had this amazing relationship with God. He had peace. Adam had peace with Eve, right, relational peace, and they had peace with nature, um, that that the place where they're in the garden was perfect, uh, no sin. And then something goes horribly wrong. Literally all hell breaks loose in Genesis 3, right? Because by Genesis 4, 5, we see murders entered the world, um, lies, family against family. It's horrible. And what's happened is man has fallen in sin, decided to walk away from God. Next, redemption. So God sends his son Jesus on a rescue mission to the world to rescue all things, right? Make all things new and pay the penalty for sin that we could never pay for ourselves. And then finally, restoration. One day God will come back and finish his work to restore all things and, and, and do away with sin completely. One of the things you'll notice here, though, is in my little graph, creation and restoration are, are sort of smaller, right? And they're they're smaller on purpose because this is the way I grew up. Creation, for me, was a story told on flannel graphs on a kid's Sunday school class. So you guys... Do you guys remember flannel graphs? Does anybody know what a flannel graph is? Okay. You guys are either old or watch a lot of YouTube, I don't know. But <laughs> before, before like iPads and stuff in Sunday school classes, there were flannel graphs, and you would cut out like a picture of Adam and Eve and, and flannel, and you stick it on other flannel, and they'd have fig leaves, and you'd have some animals in a garden, and that's what I knew about creation. Right? That was it. And restoration, all I knew is there's a couple of old guys in my church that would argue about the end times, right? And they would uh, talk about what European dictator was the Antichrist. And then there was movies with Kirk Cameron about how everything was going to be horrible in the end, right? So that's what I knew about the end. Most of our time in church is spent talking about these two things in the middle, fall and redemption, which is man is a real bad sinner and Jesus came to pay the penalty to get us into heaven. That's where we spent all of our time. Okay, man is a sinner, Jesus died on the cross so we could go to heaven. Now, are those two things true? Yes, absolutely. Those things are absolutely true. But what happened is when the story becomes unbalanced and you spend all of your time right in the middle of the story and you never talk about the edges of the story, you end up having an unbalanced view of life and I would argue an unbalanced view of work. So what we're going to do now is we're going to jump into a few scriptures to begin to unpack a more balanced view of work. And so um, you can jump to that next one now. So number one, our first point here is is God is a creator and he's a worker. So the verse we read at the beginning is uh, just the section of Genesis. I'll read it here too. and says, um, and I'll start actually a little farther back than this. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. So God, even before man, is a worker. In that, in those two verses that I just read, it says the word "work" three, four times, and says the word "creation" one time. God is a worker, and He's a creator. Um, if you guys have ever read the Chronicles of Narnia series, in the very first sort of chronological book, this is before the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. There's a scene where these two kids, Polly and Digby, have gone into this world, and there's nothing in this world. They've dropped through this sort of hole in the ground, and they come to this place that's full of nothingness. And all of a sudden they see off in the distance a lion walking toward them. The lion is Aslan, the hero of the Narnia books. And he's walking toward them and he starts singing. Okay? And as he sings, plants sprout out of the ground, hills pop up, light comes out of the horizon, lakes appear. He's singing creation into existence. This is the story of God in Genesis 1 and 2. He's a worker and he's a creator. He just doesn't snap and everything comes into existence. He creates and works and makes creation come to be. That's point number one. Point number two, because man is created in the image of God, we are created as creators and workers. This is an attribute of God that gets sort of passed down to us. And so uh, number two, we're going to look at a couple of verses. Uh, Genesis 128 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then in Genesis 2.15, he reiterates this again. and says, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden and said, keep it and till it, work it. Okay. So this is God. He's created man. He said, this is very good. The first thing he does before sin enters the world is he puts man in the garden and he says, work it, subdue it. I've given you amazing raw materials I want you to take it and make something amazing of it. Mirror me as a creator and a worker and work it and be creative. Co-create with me. Make something amazing of this place. So God or man has created um, to work, to image God and work. So a lot of people think, well, the other was Genesis 2. What about the rest of the Bible? Well, actually, this echoes throughout the Bible. So next verse I want to look at is actually in Exodus. So this is the Ten Commandments. You guys remember Ten Commandments are a big deal, right? Like... God gives Moses the law for his people. He comes down from the mountain with tablets. And this is the verse that is right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. It's Exodus 20. And it says um, this Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It says, Six days you shall labor to do all of your work, but on the seventh Sabbath, um, the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is with who is within your gates. For the sixth day, for for six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Now, a lot of times when you hear people preach on this part of the Ten Commandments, it's about the Sabbath, it's about resting on the seventh day. I think what gets missed is the command that starts this isn't rest. The command that starts is. Work six days, right? That's how the thing starts. The Sabbath is a rest at the end of the six, but God says, I worked, I created, therefore you work and you create work for six days. One of my favorites is is actually um, Psalm 104. I'm gonna read all of this, it's a little bit longer, but man, I think it's just an amazing picture of this idea that God is this amazing creator, and then he tells us, Go co-create something amazing with me. So this is Psalm 104. And it says, From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause grass to grow for the livestock and, and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. High mountains are for the wild goats, and rocks are the refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night. When the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to work and to labor until evening. And so the amazing thing about this is not just God's um, uh, amazing creativity. So if you guys have watched Bob Ross on PBS, the guy with the big hair that died a couple of years ago, I imagine God like that, like painting this amazing landscape, right? And he he makes these amazing things. And then it says he makes them for something, for a purpose. And the purpose is Uh, you cause grass to grow and livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth. And he doesn't just say bring forth food from the earth like I'm making you plants so you can make yourself food, but he says wine and bread and oil for your face. He's talking about the richness of creativity. He's not just talking about food to get by. He's talking about make something amazing to gladden your heart. Okay, so that's point number one. That's creation. That's God as a creator, and he created us as creators and workers. That makes sense? That's the first part of our story. So now we're going to jump to the very end of our story, which is over here, which is restoration. To fully understand restoration, what's going to happen at the end of things, we need to look at what Jesus said about restoration. And the first thing that Jesus says is, I'm here to usher in a kingdom. Okay, uh, this is Matthew Right here Matthew 4, 17, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, when he starts his ministry, um, he's baptized, he goes through 40 days, and he comes out and starts publicly preaching for the first time, and this is where he starts. The kingdom of God is at hand. Not ask me into your heart, and you can get a get-out-of-hell-free card, but repent. Turn. From your sin, turn from the ways of the world and turn toward my kingdom. This isn't the only verse. If you read the first part of all of the Gospels, this is all of his language. It's all kingdom language. It's I've come to usher in a kingdom. And that kingdom uh, isn't just sort of religious activity. It it includes all things. It's, It's art. It's architecture. It's how you treat the poor. It's how you handle your money. It's all of life. Okay? That's the kingdom that he describes. Now, Uh, we know that we live in a world that's flawed and broken, so his kingdom hasn't been fully realized yet. Does that make sense? So he talks about a kingdom that sort of he inaugurated, but it's not fully here because we're still living in a world of sin. But fortunately, the Bible gives us some description of what the kingdom will look like ultimately at the very end of things. And so uh, first passage that I love about this is Isaiah 60. I won't put it on the screen. It's too long to read, but I encourage you to go back and look at it. Isaiah 60 talks about the end of things, but it talks about rulers and kingdoms in a city. It talks about builders building walls of the city. It talks about artists beautifying the inner courts of God's sanctuary. It talks about the ships of Tarshish sailing down these rivers with their goods, their created goods and their wealth, and dumping them at the feet of God to glorify God. Okay, We're seeing echoes of this world, this creation that God made, and our creative work as an outflowing to worship God at the end of all things. You see this in Revelation, so let's jump to Revelation 21. Um, it says, and this is John, he has a vision and a dream, and he's writing down what he sees of, of heaven at the end of all things. And he says, he says, And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven of God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud, vo- loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God will be with them as their God. So, heaven is not clouds with us floating around with little wings as sort of like translucent weird beings. It's a new city. It is a new city come down Um. And all made new without the ramifications of sin. Okay, this has a couple of really big ramifications for me as I go to work. So, number one, uh, the big deal for me at work is when I go to work now. It is just not about me witnessing to my coworkers because I need to get them out of hell. Okay, my work now is about ushering in a kingdom. It's about showing off God's kingdom in all I do at work. So does that mean that I tell my coworkers about Jesus? Yeah, sure, absolutely. But it means so much more than that. It means that I put God's kingdom on display at my work. Uh, It means a couple of other things. It means originally uh, we were put in a garden, which was amazing. We had perfect relationship and shalom, peace. But at the end, we're not going to be in a garden. We're going to be in a new city. Uh, with echoes of how we've created with God. Um, There's a couple of different ways I like to use to illustrate this, and so I kind of want to, you can hop to the next slide now. I'm going to back up a little bit. Um, The cultural mandate is what most theologians would call that verse in Genesis 2, where it says, go subdue creation, fill it, work it, make something amazing of it. Okay, and I like this description. It says, God makes the raw materials and we refine what God has made in order to put his character on display and produce human flourishing. So we work in order to love and bless the world around us, just like the great commandment says. So you guys see this picture? you guys recognize that picture? Anybody recognize anything in that picture? Yeah? <laughs> Nathan does. Because literally, I think you can almost see Nathan's desk, actually, in that building right there. Um, So this is downtown Phoenix. This is like, if you're standing where the suns play and looking that way, that's first in Washington a long time ago, obviously, right? So this is just an amazing picture of human flourishing. I wish Phoenix could get back to this. Do you know there was like trolley cars in downtown Phoenix? We had a Chinatown. It was amazing, amazing. So this this is just a side note. I would love this kind of human flourishing in, in Phoenix again. I'd love to get back to that. Um. The reason I put this up there, and I want to look at at um, the sort of the Genesis 2 version of subduing creation the cultural mandate, is for this reason. If you jump to the next one. Do you guys recognize this? Have you guys seen one of these before? Yeah. What is that? Spoon? What's it for, though? Ice cream. Yes, ice cream. Right. Amazing. My kids love these spoons, because you can taste like 40 different things at Baskin-Robbins and tell the... Um, young gal working there eventually yells at you. But it's amazing. So, but the point of these spoons is to give us a taste, right? We don't get the whole thing. We don't get the whole scoop of pralines and cream. But what we do is get a taste of what it's going to be like. And so this is us as Christians right now. When you go to your work, when you go to your class, whatever you do vocationally, your job is to give people a little taste of what the kingdom tastes like. That when the effects of sin are rolled back and things are put right, things are as they should be, we want people around us to have a little bit of taste, a little taste of that. Does that make sense? Okay, go on to the next one. This is another illustration that I really like. Um, I think this is how a lot of us, especially those that have been around the church, think about Christianity. Those of you that are that are newer to the faith, I I don't think you have this as much typically, but those of us that have been around the church, this is a problem for us. This is God's kingdom to us. God's kingdom is religious activity. When I grew up, I grew up, I was a, became a Christian when I was nine. And the whole of my Christian experience was, did I read my Bible in the morning? Am I praying? Did I show up at church? Did I check those boxes? Because that religious activity was what God's kingdom was about, right? You can jump to the next one. And, and in my world, everything on earth fell outside of God's kingdom. So art and literature um, the marketplace, education, politics it, it at very least it was morally neutral and in some cases people considered it morally bad okay but it was definitely not in God's kingdom it, the way I grew up what you what you end up seeing is uh, um, Christians try to like shove these things up into the top part in unnatural ways. I'll give you a great example of this. Um, this again, I know this makes me old, but when I grew up, you'd go to a Christian bookstore and you'd buy cassette tapes or CDs, okay? Because most of you don't even remember cassette tapes or CDs, but it used to be a thing that you'd use to listen to music with, right? And so you go and they'd actually, at the Christian bookstore, they'd have this card. And the card would say, if you like Def Leppard, then you will really dig this Christian band who's almost as good as Def Leppard and three years too late, right? And so then I would walk over to the section and I would find the Def Leppard light cassette tape that was not nearly as good as Def Leppard. That we, we, that's what we do as Christians. We take you know our termite exterminating business and we put a Christian fish on the van. And so in some way we can start shoving Christian things up into this by labeling them as Christian That's not what the Bible describes. What the Bible describes is this next slide. Everything is part of God's kingdom, right? The market, politics, business, art, entertainment, my leisure time, it is all God's. It is all God's kingdom. One of my favorite theologians, Abraham Kuyper, says this, which is, there's not a square inch on the whole of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry mine. You guys have probably seen this quote before, but it's just the idea is that God is sovereign over all creation. He is sovereign over everything, every square inch. And so this has a few big implications for us as Christians in our work. Um, It means a few different things I think that are helpful. So uh, number one, um, it means that religious work isn't more or less important than secular work. It means that as amazing as Tim is, and I loved him, his work up here isn't more or less important than your work, that, uh, more important than whatever you do during the day. It also means that work in the home, what my wife does, my wife stays home with our kids, what she does in our home isn't more or less important than what I do at work. It means that if I have a blue-collar job or more of a, a trades job working with my hands, it is not more or less important than a white-collar job, okay? If I have something that's like sort of grand and public in the work that I do, it is not more or less important than mundane or private work. It is all work. God screams mine over all of it, and all of it's designed to put his kingdom on display. Does that make sense? The other thing is this. So uh, this may come as a de- disappointment to some of you guys, but work isn't primarily about witnessing to your coworkers. It includes witnessing to your coworkers, but it's not primarily about that. It's not primarily about earning money. I, so many people, especially sort of the baby boomer generation, they think they can do whatever they work at, want at work because really the reason they work is to give to the church, and as long as they're giving to the church, that's what it's all about. That is not what God says. That's not what God says at all. Working isn't primarily about giving to the church or even giving to those in need. Now, do you do that? Yes, absolutely you do that. Work isn't primarily about providing for my family. I do provide for my family through work, but that's not what it's primarily about. It's primarily about subduing God's creation in amazing ways, rolling back the effects of sin so that when people look at me, they see the kingdom. They see the good life. They get that little taster spoon. And so that when I do proclaim Christ, they say, that's good news. That is really good news. Does that make sense? Okay, good. So that's sort of first half. Okay, that's the theology of work. I'm going to spend the next uh, 15 minutes now giving us some handles to figure out how we apply this at our work on a day-to-day basis. Uh, One of my favorite writers is a guy named Andy Crouch. Um, If you haven't read him, I'd highly recommend it if you're into this kind of thing. But he talks a lot about culture and what it means to sit in culture as a Christian and what it means to change culture. And he says that as Christians in culture, we can have a few different responses. So when we come in contact in our culture, especially to something that's sinful and that we don't like, uh, we can respond in one of four ways. Number one, we can critique it. Okay? So if we see a movie we don't like, if we see somebody running their family away we don't like, if we see politics we don't like, we can critique it. Okay? And we're great at this as Christians. Right? So you turn on AM radio for about five minutes, and you realize that evangelical right-leaning Christians have critiquing down to an art. We are very, very good at critiquing. Right? So that's one response you can have to culture. Okay? Number two, we can avoid it. So you see this in Christianity a lot too. We can build walls around ourselves and our little Christian culture so we never actually have to come in contact. I'm losing buttons here. That's horrible. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> I'm getting chubby in my old age and popping everywhere. Um, so we can, uh, we can build walls around ourselves. We can avoid it. Okay. We can copy it. That's what we talked about with the horrible Deaf Leopard ripoff a minute ago. Right? We, can, we can just make a, a copy. We can see something on Pinterest, then two months later we can make the lame Christian version of that thing. Okay. It happens all the time. What Andy Crouch says is really the only way to change culture is by creating something better. So that's what we do as Christians. If we want to truly impact or change culture, we have to create something better. And then he talks about this as some handles for a worldview to think about now how to create something better. Okay, So he says in any worldview, these are the questions that get asked, which is how are things supposed to be, why are they broken, and what can be done to put them right? Christianity actually answers these questions in amazing ways. So how are things supposed to be? Look at the garden. It's right relationship with God, beautiful community, beautiful marriage, beautiful family, Beautiful relationship with creation, that's how things are supposed to be. What happened? What broke? Well, man sinned and everything went wrong, right? Bad relationships all around now. How can they be put right? Well, Jesus deals with that and dies in our place, deals with the effect of sin so we can be restored to that shalom again. That's how Christianity answers. Consumerism answers these three questions, right? So how are things supposed to be? Well, if I'm, I'm materialism, consumerism is what drives me, I'm supposed to be comfortable and entertained. Okay. So why are they broken? Well, I don't have all of the stuff that can entertain me and keep me comfortable. I don't have the house. I don't have the car. I don't have the new version of the Xbox, whatever it is. I don't have that. So how can they meet, be put right? I can make more money and buy more stuff to make me more comfortable and more entertained. All worldviews that you come across have these. And I think these are actually incredibly valuable as we walk into our work on an everyday basis and look at how these questions are being asked at your work. So what's broken? What went wrong? And then how can it be put right? Okay. So now I'm going to circle all the way back around to the first, where you very first started and go to that next slide, which is this. This is the neighborhood I live in. Okay. I live in a neighborhood called Agritopia. It's this... Creepy, weird cult Mayberry meets Truman show thing where we have like vegetable gardens in the middle of our neighborhood. The reason our neighborhood came to be is this. Um, a guy, uh, Joe Johnson, that lives out by us, saw suburbs and he saw things that felt like they were marred by sin. So, as you guys think about the suburbs, can you guys think of anything that's sort of wrong and feels marred by sin? Yeah. A lot of nods from you downtown city dwellers. You're like, heck yes, that's why we live here, not there. (laughs) So I, I, I live there, so let me point out some of the obvious things, okay? There's a bunch of houses that look like they were stamped out of some bad architecture journal that all look exactly the same, like stucco nonsense over and over and over again. They have big garage doors in the front, so I can drive into my house and shut my garage door without ever talking to my neighbors, ever. I can literally leave my whole life without ever seeing a neighbor. When I want groceries or something to eat, I get back in my car in my garage and drive like two miles to a Starbucks or a Fry's where I see nobody that I know and have complete anonymity. I can go in my backyard with big old stone walls and spend all of my outside time completely secluded and cut off from the outside world. Does that sound like biblical community? No, not really. So what this guy in our neighborhood said is, what if we had really short walls and small backyards? What if houses looked all different from one another and actually had some architectural care? What if we had big front porches that pushed families out into the street? What if we had a garden and shops in the middle of our neighborhood that were run by people in the neighborhood that were all walkable, so people ran into each other? What would community, what would life look like if we rolled back the effects of sin in suburbia and made all things new? So Garage East is actually a wine bar. A couple of friends of mine, they're believers, or are young life people, so it's okay to drink wine apparently if you're young life. So, um, they have a wine bar, right? So, and then this is like a maker shop with like a gunsmithy shop, a hair salon, a, like a woodworking shop, a vegan restaurant, all in here, all primarily run by people in our neighborhood. It's, it's beautiful. It's messy. People are sinful. And so you throw them all into community like this, and it doesn't always work perfectly, but man, it's fun leaning into what God meant for community. That makes sense? Okay, let's go to the next one. So, mechanic. So, uh, how many of you guys have been uh, to the mechanic in the last year? Yeah. So, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands with this, but if I said, how many of them you had a delightful experience? Probably not as many hands go up. Okay. Uh, the This industry is marred by sin. Right. So, um, I had a, this is a great story, I had a, Um, a Toyota that I drive and somebody forgot to plug um, my rear differential. Uh, I didn't know what it was either because I'm not a car guy but it's really bad when your oil leaks out of it and the thing breaks and you can't drive anymore. So I go into Toyota and I say my rear differential is broken they say it's $11,000 and I go, "Uh, my car's not worth $11,000 and they say, well, sorry, I don't know what to tell you, it's $11,000 great, that's super helpful. So I go to another mechanic in town And he says, "Um, your rear differential is broken. I go, yeah. And he goes, "Uh, you don't want to pay $11,000. And I said, no, you're right. He goes, yeah, man. He goes, let me call around. So he calls around all over the city to try to find me a used one. Can't find it. And he pays a buddy to rebuild my rear differential by hand. Okay. Halfway through the process, he calls me and says, hey, your side mirror is broken too. That seems dangerous. I bet I can find you a used one of those too. Just blesses the heck out of me. And he blesses the heck out of me because he's subduing plastic and steel and his craft, and he cares about his job in a way to love on me and bless me. Completely change how I feel about mechanics. Make sense? Okay, next one. This is my house. So so stay-at-home moms, anybody's a homemaker or, or spends most of the time around the house, it is really hard. It's really hard on your own. And we have five kids. Throw five kids in the mix. It gets really hard, really fast. And it's marred by sin. My kids are in the room, so I won't tell you all the ways it's marred by sin, but it's marred by sin, right? And so this, this is my wife makes this. She hand makes these things for my kids. And so um, this is, I think, Micah's birthday was recently. So when Micah comes down for school in the morning, he's greeted by happy birthday that his mom has made. She's taken the time to craft something by hand, put it up in our home to love and bless my kids. Amazing subduing subduing of creation to love and bless other people. Okay, next one. And by the way, the reason I'm going through all of these isn't on accident. What I'm hoping that you'll do in this process is begin to imagine for yourself and at your work, Okay, in my classroom, at my work, at home, In my staff meetings, what does it look like to ask the question, what's broken? What can I do to put things right? Okay. This. This is club sports. So um, once your kids start getting older, they get into sports. And club sports is crazy town. I mean, insane, unhealthy, imbalanced nonsense. We know that because a lot of our kids play it. Okay. (laughs) So... This is a baseball team called the Grays. This guy right here, Brian Berger, he's a pastor at Redemption Church in Gilbert. He said, "Club sports do not reflect the kingdom of God. What would club baseball look like if the if the fall would have never happened? If you rolled back the effects of sin, what would baseball look like before the fall? And so they've they made a whole baseball club around this. This is amazing. These are all kids that play on this team. They so they're a team for others." They're for their teammates and they're for their opponents. They put their opponents and teammates first. They he, he tells all this all these stories about um, bragging. Bubba, Caleb, you have to tell me if I'm getting that right or not. But but the, he they have stories about they made up about all of these personas that you don't want to be. And so their whole team, um, the opposing team will say, "What is different about your guys's team? You guys beat the snot out of us because you're really good baseball players." And also, you were so kind. Like, you didn't yell at your kids. You had kids on your bench that were cheering for our team. We've never experienced that before. What's different? Right? There's actually a lady on this team that's a, that's a team mom that with other moms that a, bunch of, a lot of them weren't believers from two different teams. She started a Bible study that has, like, 21 people in it, 21 moms from uh, her team and an opposing team. Amazing. Okay, club sports. Next one This is Technology. So everybody's looking at the phone in this picture. This is the world that I live in, which is technology. I'm a software developer by trade, okay? And it's easy to look at how technology, that sin around technology is making the world a worse place, okay? The great example is everybody walking like this and literally you walk through the airport or mall or people are running into each other because they can't get off their phones. And the thing they're doing on their phones is like usually looking at social media, this very shallow, like they feel like they're in a relationship, but they're really not. It's just like scratching an itch. They're not doing the hard work to love one another. So what if in my job in technology, so in this case, if I was making apps, let's say, what if I was making apps that made people turn their phone around, and so they were experiencing something shared with a bunch of other people, what if the phone drove community, and content that drove people to love one another and get in deeper relationship with one another. What if I was thinking about at every point, how do I redeem technology in order to love the world around me rather than create shallow community? Uh, two more and we're done. So next one, uh, education. Do we have anybody, teachers in here, anybody who works in education? Anybody? Woo! <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, uh, my mom, who's back there, actually works uh, in education in, in, in Chandler schools. And so this is a big one, With especially with kids. This is a big one. The teachers that teach my kids, I want them to embrace this. I want them to look at their classroom, look at my kids and the other kids around and say, how is this broken? How has this been affected by sin? And how would education have looked if sin would have never happened? Like if the effects of sin were rolled back, how does education look? And that's as as a teacher or a teacher's aid, how does it look? Like, how do I keep an organized classroom so kids aren't stressed out? How do I train kids to put each other first and love on one another? How do I meet kids where they're at in the learning process and help them grow how God's created them instead of um, the random expectations of the world we live in, right? What does education look like when things are put right? Uh, The final one. Uh, This guy is Jimmy Lin, he's a buddy of mine. He um, uh, is a doctor, but he got this itch that um, there's millions of people that die every year in this country from some of the world's most rare diseases. So some diseases in this world, there might only be a hundred people on the face of the planet that have ever had this disease. And science hasn't put very much time into that at all. They put more time into like cancer research, right? Because it kills a lot of people but these very rare diseases, it doesn't put very much type in. So what Jimmy figured out is using things like crowdsourcing the internet and data research from all over the world. For the first time, he had the tools to do true research on some of the world's most rare diseases. So built out, he has a TED talk on it, built out this whole platform on caring for the people that are literally the most marginalized because sometimes they'll have a disease that nobody in their whole city even understands and they're dying. And so he's created this platform using technology to care for them. A great way of saying what's broken in the world, how can it be put right? And then when I proclaim Christ, I want them to see a kingdom difference. Okay? So that's it. That's it for me today. Um, My challenge for you guys as you go into your work, your classroom, home, wherever it is for you vocationally, I really uh, encourage you to think about the idea that you've been created to image God as a creator and a worker and to do it hard, do it with all of your heart, do it with integrity. And as you do it, ask those questions. What would the world look like if the effects of sin were rolled back? If I subdued creation around me in a way that loved and blessed the people around me um, and put God on display. Uh, Let me pray for us and the band will come back up to lead us. God, uh, thank you so much um, just that you are a creator and a worker. I thank you that you love us. I do thank you for those middle parts of the story, that you would send your son um, to die in our place and so that we could have this conversation about imaging you. We thank you so much for what you're doing in your kingdom here and look forward so much to that perfect kingdom uh, when the effects of sin are no more. We are so grateful, God, uh, and we thank you.